0: Jean Louise Calment was born February 21st, 1875. She celebrated her 120th birthday in 1995, and at that time, she was the oldest person in the world and had become quite a celebrity in her country of France. French Minister of Health even came to her birthday party, and three books were written about this amazing lady. But it was the medical community and medical scientists who were most interested in Jean. They studied her life to try to figure out how she could live so long. What did she do? Or she what did she do different from other people? And they found nothing particularly unique about her diet, though she did confess that for years she would eat two pounds of chocolate every week. Go Jeanie. She also smoked moderately until the age of 117. She only used olive oil when she cooked, and she liked to take vigorous walks and ride her bike until she was 100. At age 110, she laughed and said, I had to wait 110 years to become famous, and I intend to enjoy it as long as possible. But by the time she got up to 120, she was confined to a wheelchair. And when asked how she was getting along, she smiled and said, Well, I see badly, I hear badly, can't feel anything, but other than that, I'm fine. Somebody asked her what kind of future she expected at that time, and displaying her normal good humor, she said, Very short one. And Jean Louise Kalmut, Eventually died, August 4th, 1997, at the age of 122 years, 164 days. Can you imagine how much Social Security that woman would have drawn? I mean, can you imagine? imagine that? Now, I don't even expect to do that. I, I don't think there's going to be any left by the time we get there. This morning, we continue our summer series on how to tackle the trials of life. And uh, we had a time trying to select these topics, uh, looking at how many weeks of the summer and and uh, what we thought was worthy of seeing uh, of treating them biblically. How 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 that would come together. And um, so as we came came to this end of the series, which is we're going to close it in August. We've got not just one sermon on death, but you've got to come back next week for part two of death. So if you really want to encourage your friends and neighbors, don't bring them to church the next couple of weeks. You know. <laughs> Wait till we get through this. And uh, there's still uh, several more that we want to talk about. But, but there was no way to, to really fit, fit everything that needed to be said into just one message. And it would have been far too long. And you would not have sat through that. So we broke it in half. Now, there's a lot of scripture in this message, and so if you will write down the text, it would be good for you to, to go home and look them up, uh, as uh, there's a lot the Bible has to say about this matter. Hebrews 9.27 presents these sober words. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after that, the judgment. You may have seen the television show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Has anybody in our church ever been on that show, by the way? I mean, it's really interesting how they go about uh, helping these people try to get this money. And if you've watched it, if you're familiar with the show, uh, if you run into a question you can't answer, they have what's called lifelines. And the lifelines, in some case, you know, would... Well, there might be, uh, you could ask your friends, or you could, well, there's several different ways, different ways that you could do that. You could do the 50-50 option, for example. Uh, that, that, you know, you, 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 half and half. It's when they die, some people hope they'll make it to heaven. They think they've got at least a 50-50 chance to be able to handle that. They're trying to do enough good things in order to get in. Then the other lifeline option, another one, is called you phone a friend. See if they've got the answer. Some people do what their friends do. Some people think what their friends think. Some people are counting on their friends to do enough good things to get into heaven. Or, if the, that's not an option, you can ask, ask the audience. You could see what the collective people, the body people. A lot of people simply go with the majority view of everything. majority of the people reject the Bible, then you're going to reject the Bible. But here's an important question to ponder. When it comes to this trial of death, what is your lifeline? Where where do you go for answers? How do you come to terms with this? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and I hope that you are, then you already should know that the Bible is the owner's manual of the human heart. And as such, we can go to God's Word, and we can examine it, and we can discern things about these trials and problems. All of the things we've talked about this summer, and we'll talk about, you've got to go to Scripture to resolve them. So, let's see what the Bible has to say about five basic questions concerning the trial of death. You ready? Question number one, well, what is death? Well, from a Christian worldview, to answer that question, you've got to understand how each of us has been made. As he closed out the New Testament book of First Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now basically, God has created us with two sections or two parts. First is the invisible inner part. And that's made up of your soul. It's the, uh, the, the, your mind, will, and emotions is all wrapped up in the soulish part of who you are. And your human spirit. Now, that's the eternal part of who you are. We receive uh, these two things at the moment of our conception, and it is the very center of our personality. Now, then we have our body that is the package that all those things we just talked about fits into. That's the second part, the physical body. It's this tangible outer shell, skin and bones, the thing that houses our soul and spirit. And death takes place when the soul and the spirit separate from your body. Now, one way to illustrate this would be if I brought a glove up here and I slipped this glove over my hand. Then what you would still see is basically the shape of my hand. Um, the gloves covering it, just a wrapping, just something to keep my hand warm in the winter. But inside the glove is the real hand. And so removing the glove doesn't change anything about the hand itself inside. And likewise, when you and I die, we merely cast off the outer shell that isn't needed where we're going. The Apostle Paul wrote it and put it this way in First 1 Corinthians 15.50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit that which is imperishable. All through the Bible, the ideas of death and separation are used interchangeably. When death takes place, your inner person, that's the soul, that's the spirit, separates instantly from the outer physical body. Over in the Gospel of Luke, chapter twenty three, when Jesus was on the cross, the thief next to him asked, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. So that, that's kind of a encapsulation of the, the basics of what death is and what we have to look forward to. Let's go to another another question. Does everybody die? And according to Romans five twelve, the answer is yes. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through man and death, or through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sin. So, if you and I are descendants of Adam and Eve, and I would assume that is the case, that's the general rule for all humanity here, and it's a pretty simple one: one out of one persons die. That's simple statistic. But even this rule in scripture, we hear of a couple of exceptions ordained by God. Two of them had to do with Old Testament saints. One was named Enoch, and the other was named Elijah. And both men bypassed the experience of death, and they went straight on into God's very presence. The only other exception to death is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, where uh, it refers to those that are still living at the time of the rapture, as we read about that in the book of Revelation. The Apostle Paul writes, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. By the way, I've seen that sign over in a, in a nursery at the church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That'd be a good motto for the... Okay. That's really an old joke, but I like it anyway. (laughs) In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, that leads us to question number three. What really does take place after we die? The very moment that your spirit separates from your physical body, what happens? Well, this is a sobering issue because of this very important reason. What happens to you after you die depends on what's happened to you before you die. Everybody understand that? Something needs to take place before you die. In fact, it's one of the reasons we're here today. It's one of the reasons the church exists and why we preach the gospel. The destiny of the person who has never trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation is totally different from that of the one who has. I mean, let's consider first what becomes of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Now, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, and that it's called a tent. A tent's a temporary dwelling place. Nobody wants to live in a tent their whole life. But he says, when we know with our earthly tent, when it's destroyed, we will still have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Just as a tent is considered temporary, our, whole, our physical bodies are just a temporary place of shelter for our soul and for our spirit. And one day, death will tear that down. It'll tear down that tattered tent. And it will be replaced with something that's permanent etern- and uniquely designed for an eternal existence with God. But for those who do not know the Lord Jesus, the Bible teaches in Luke 16 verse 19 that they will pass away into a place of torment called death and Hades. This place is a, a, conscious, a place of conscious, terrible anguish. And there they will remain until their final sentence is pronounced at the great white throne judgment that's talked about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. It reads, then I saw a great white throne and from him who was seated on it and earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You See, a mistaken idea, I think, that many people have is that only the Christian has eternal life. That's not true. Everyone has eternal life. The difference is where that life is spent, which raises another question that people often ask about death. How can a God of love... Take pleasure in tormenting people forever. Has that thought not crossed your mind at some point in time? How, how, how can this? I know it is if you've had to talk to somebody who's not a Christian about this subject. How's this possible? Here, here's what I'm going to say about that. The problem is with this question is that it's, not, it's an unanswerable question. Here's why. It's full of Misconceptions. First, the Bible never said that God takes ple- pleasure in tormenting people. Never does it say that. And second, the Bible never says that God is personally torments people. Instead, it's the loneliness and the ache and the abandonment, the, the pain of hell that plagues the unbeliever through eternity. I heard a preacher say one time if people could just have just a tiny glimpse of what awaited the non believer, just a glimpse. That they would rush very quickly and bow before God and ask for deliverance. But our culture doesn't seem to take it death very seriously. So the Bible never says God, you know, takes pleasure in this, and the Bible never says he personally torments anybody. The only thing right about this question is that God is indeed a God of love. That part of the phrase is true. 1 John 4 verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But Whoever does not love does not really know God because God is love. That's his essence, but that's not all. He's also perfect and he's holy and he's pure. You know, 1 Peter 1:15 declares, just as he who called you is holy. So you and I be holy. In all that we do, for it's written: "Be holy because I'm holy." So when people choose to reject that love and go their own way and disregard it, then they are choosing to suffer the consequences which goes along with that decision. I love what C.S. Lewis once wrote. He says there's only two kinds of people in the world, and <clears throat> the very end is only two kinds. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God looks at and says, and thy will be done. Pretty sobering. Okay, last question. What about funerals? You see, as Christians, our hearts or desire, I guess you would say, should be that Jesus Christ would be exalted even in our death. I've been at funerals where it virtually was a worship service. I've also been at funerals where it was just, just almost miserable silence and anguish. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1.20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Listen to this. Whether... My body, my life, or that Christ be exalted in my body even by my death. So, as Christians, we need to give some thought about how this can be achieved, perhaps, at a funeral. Let me give you a few ideas. Regarding a funeral service, one question that people have is, well, should we have the casket open or have the casket closed? And this is tough because for those of us that are still alive and our loved ones passed away and, and we're still pretty attached to that body. We're attached to the, the person itself, you know, and so it's kind of tough to decide sometimes what to do. There are some that say an open casket puts a focus on the shell rather than the spirit and soul that have already left it. Sometimes there's an alternative suggestion is to have a private graveside service just for the family. And then you have a special service later without the casket, without the, the body there. Uh, but but you, do that without, you have friends and acquaintances come then. It could be a praise service just meant to encourage each other in the Lord, those left behind. And there's even ways to glorify God after the funeral. Isn't this fun? This trial of death. I really thought Nick should preach this. I really did. But it is, it's a tough subject. It's tough to deal with. But yet it's important to ponder this. Have you ever considered putting in your will a statement of your faith in Jesus Christ and God? Charles Dickens, for example, included in his will these words. I commit my soul to the mercy of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Simple but very clear. Or how about sending an announcement of your loved one's death with the clear presentation of that person's testimony for Christ? You see this occasionally, even in a newspaper. Or one last suggestion would be that you designate resources or funds normally spent on flowers and all these other things to a favorite mission or church or special project of a loved one. And These are just suggestions, but they're designed to help us rethink some of the age-old practices that have filtered down to us through the years. We're going to talk about a few of those next week, but I want to give you one final thought this morning as we ponder this. Trying to understand the role of death in the drama of human history is not easy. Nobody looks forward to death when you think about it. But fortunately, somebody came along who understood the distorted story of mankind, understand what men had done, what humans have changed, how much we've distorted love and truth. Someone who could tell us what the original was like. Someone came along to do that. Why things had changed, how we could through that someone overcame death, overcome death. And his name was Jesus. He was a dear friend to a family of uh, one brother named Lazarus and two sisters, Mary and Martha. And when Lazarus died, these grieving sisters sent for Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 17, I'll close with this passage. Here's what we read. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Jesus was late. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here my brother would not have died. But, I love this, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. You talk about faith. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. See, she knew the book of Revelation. She didn't have it yet, but she knew it. She knew what was taught. And Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection. He said, I'm the life. And he who believes in me will live, even though they die. Now, what we're going to do next week is we're going to look at some a few more aspects of this that will be even more helpful to us. As we reflect upon this trial, this one particular trial of the many, that every one of us in this room has an appointment with. We just don't know when it is, do we? Let's pray together. Father, you have been so good to us. We have had so many blessings and so many wonderful things happen in the life of our church over all the years. And Father, we keep coming in and out of a difficult time right now. And so, Father, I just ask as you minister to us today, which is one of the roles of your spirit is to comfort and encourage, to bless and give us insight. Especially in a time where there's a lot of fear, a lot of uh, concern about whether one lives or dies. So, Father, all we ask is to help us have the right perspective. Help us see all of this stuff from your side, from your eyes. And then we can respond appropriately. We may not have adequate answers to solve the world's dilemmas. Maybe all these things are a judgment on our nation. Maybe they're not. We don't know, Lord. But we walk by faith, not by sight. And so, Father, my prayer would be for us as we reflect upon these trials. We know this one's coming. We don't know when. But, Lord God, help us to understand all that's really going on here. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. For the treasure that mounts to us is way up beyond the blue. Help us have the right perspective. Help us keep spiritual equilibrium to trust in you, trust in your word, and then confidently move forward into the future, knowing that everything is going to be all right for every Christian. Lord, we love you. We praise you today in our wonderful Lord's name.